um, the, the thing that is uh, very exciting for, for all of us this morning at Grace is um, many of us have seen our worship leader, Ryan Hahn, right over there, uh, playing a variety of different instruments and leading us in worship. He is a man of many talents, but um, one of the things that he can do is he can also preach. And so um, this morning, he is uh, going to share uh, in our Bad Boys of the Bible series. He's actually quite a bad boy himself. Um, and so uh, when, when he saw this series coming up, he said, man, I want Gideon. I want Gideon. And so um, I don't want to give away any more of his message. But uh, I, I just, you know, it's, it's tough to get up here and, uh, and, and to do this. And he's poured himself into uh, prep preparing. But if you guys could just give him a big, uh, you know, clap of encouragement. And, uh... Well, good morning. I did have one more announcement, actually. John and Derek have agreed to sing next week. And uh, <laughs> so when you see them later, please thank them because it was very helpful for me that they're going to be leading worship next week. And they're really good. So... Oh, good morning, guys, and it's, it's a privilege just to be here in front of you guys, uh, my friends, and to speak. And what are we going to speak about today? We're going to talk about Gideon. Giddy up! And why did I pick Giddy up? Just because. It sounded cool, so I couldn't think of a cool, you know, catchy, meaningful line, so it's Giddy up. Maybe you can find a hidden, hidden meaning under the layers there, but um, before we start, let's pray, if you guys will join me. Uh, Father God, we just uh, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for letting us um, be in this space and worship you, God. Um, God, we just want to hear you today. You have a word um, that you want to speak, and um, you've written it out for us in the life of Gideon. Help us to hear you speak to every one of us individually as we need to hear it, God. You know where we are now, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're just going to get right into it, Gideon. And I picked Gideon. Derek let me choose a couple of weeks ago. Um, who wanted to speak out, and I picked Gideon because I actually I just didn't know anything about him. So I knew that he left Bibles in my hotel room. So <laughs> that's about all I knew. Okay, so we're going to read about Gideon, and so the story of Gideon is in Judges six through eight, and we're going to read Judges six seven through ten, and that's where it says, "When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says.'" I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. All right, so what's happening here? Well, in the book of Judges, we see a cyclical pattern occurring, and this is right in the, right in the middle of that cycle. What happens is the Israelites, they're in this land of, land of uh, Canaan, the promised land. What happens is they break their promise with God. They start worshiping the idols of that land. They don't forget God, but they start worshiping the idols um, that are in that land. And God's angry, as he has every right to be. And so he hands them over to all these oppressors who are coming from other sides. They want to occupy this land and take it over as well. It's a nice, nice piece of land. And um, they come and impress them, and the Israelites, suddenly, they remember, oh, God, we did wrong to you. Please help us. And God loves them so much, he goes, okay, I'll help you. And he sends a judge for them, 
really it's a leader. It's not like a guy in a black robe, though that would have been awesome, coming to save them. But it's a leader who saves them, delivers them from these enemies. Then there's a lot of peace, and then the judge dies, and then, yep, they forget about God again, and the cycle happens again. <laughs> so we're right in the middle of that, at the beginning um, of one of those cycles, um, as it describes right there. And we're just going to move on, and we get introduced to Gideon, who's the judge in this section. Let's look at Judges 6, 11 through 17. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? The Lord turned to him and said, I like how God doesn't entertain that with an answer, because he should know. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. It's very nice of the Lord to wait for Gideon, so, uh, which you'll see is a common theme here. So here's Gideon. We find Gideon. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. So what's happening? Well, he's really he's acting like a coward. Um, when you're threshing wheat, you're really beating the wheat to separate the wheat from the chaff, the wheat berries from the chaff. And normally it's done outside where there's a lot of wind to help that process. But because he's scared of the Midianites and he's scared of them taking his food, he's doing it basically in a pit somewhere where they can't see him, which is very ironic that the angel Lord would be calling him a mighty warrior in this instance. So he's naturally confused. Um, but there are two points I want to make about calling that we see here, because God is calling Gideon to a task right now, just as he might call us to a task in our life many times. And the first point, which is up there, and it's in your bulletin, is God calls us as we are. And there are actually two meanings in that. If we look at verse 12, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So God calls Gideon a mighty warrior, even though he isn't really mighty in this instance. But God can see us, and he loves us, and he calls us as we truly are, not as we perceive ourselves to be. And that's the case here with Gideon. The second meaning of that is that it's a state of being. God calls us as we are. If you look at verse 14, God tells him, go in the strength you have and save Israel. He's just telling him to go as he is. I'll use the strength that you have, however strong, however weak that is, and I'll, and I'll do it for my good. The second observation we see here about calling is that we need to make sure it's God's voice. So it might look like Gideon doesn't have much faith here, right? That's what I thought when I first read this. I was like, wow, he's going to do something? Um, because God assures him three times in this passage. He's like, I'm with you. I'm going to send you. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to be with you. And each of those times, Gideon fires back with a question um, of reluctance, of doubt. But really, as we saw earlier, Gideon's kind of afraid, I mean, and, and likely so in this environment. The, the Midianites are a desert marauding people, and 
it says in the scripture that they swarmed the land like locusts. And so for seven years they came in, they would ravage the land, take all the food, and then leave. And so all the Israelites, they were so scared they'd been in hiding. They were hiding in caves, they they're hiding their food in caves. So it's not hard to see why Gideon's afraid. And God knows he's afraid. God knows his character. So what Gideon's actually doing is he's, he's just asking God because he wants to make sure this is the God of Israel, not some other God. Um, so he's, he's a coward. He's a little reluctant, as you can see. But what we learn from here is that we can go to God with our questions. We can go with our doubts as we are. The important thing is that we should go with him with our own voice, um, not with some churchy language you might have learned or things that you might have known, but go honestly before God, as Gideon does here, um, to discern whether it's his voice. And true to his word, God answers. Um, Gideon goes, brings an offering, a food offering, and God consumes it with fire. Gideon's amazed, and he suddenly realizes that it's God. Uh, in verse 22, it says, Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord. And that's when we start the wheels in motion. Finally. All right. So we're going to take a little break from that, set it aside, and we're going to talk about me a little bit, since I'm up here. <laughs> so I actually spoke up here two years ago, and now people have forgotten, so now it's okay that I can come up. And um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll see you in 2014, I guess. But... Uh, the last time I, I was here, I spoke about how I j- joined the staff and how I left um, kind of the corporate job and the life. Not, not that there's anything wrong with the corporate job, but really the summary of that was I was really dissatisfied um, with where I was. I had felt a very severe lack of purpose. Um, I was sort of running the rat race, you know, and I was just a little bit into it when I asked myself, uh, I don't think I like cheese. So... Um, like Gideon, God called on me, and he called on me through two of my crazy roommates who weren't here. Well, one of them could be here. Okay. He's not that crazy. And um, he called me to the church staff here at Grace, where I was attending at the time. And like Gideon, I wanted to make really sure it was God, because that's how I am, too. I'm very similar to Gideon in many ways. Um, and I was very reluctant. And whereas it took Gideon probably, you know, who knows, an hour, three hours. It took me about four months to really know, you know. So you can imagine how, how frustrated God might have been. Um, so four months later, I joined the staff. And then after I joined staff, it was amazing. Man, I, I never sinned again. And then um, <laughs> I was always happy. And they gave me this white robe when I came. It was, it was really weird. No, definitely not. It was the opposite. I, from day one, it was the beginning of even more doubt, even more questions, even more reluctance. How funny that is. And not only that, a lot of these idols that were in my life that I hadn't seen before started to creep up. They, want, they started vying for my attention. So let's go back to Gideon, and let's look in Judges 6.25. We'll continue with our story. So Gideon's ready to go. That's what we think. So the Lord asks him this first thing before he does anything. He says, The same night the Lord said to him, Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height. So Gideon took his ten servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. 
Yes, he's a Brady cat. But at least he did something, okay? And he listened, at least he listened to God. What's interesting in here is that before Gideon does anything, before he rallies an army for anything, God tells him to take down this altar to Baal. It's also interesting that Gideon comes from a family of idol worshippers. His dad was the caretaker of the Baal altar. So God's using uh, a Baal worshipper and a family um, to do his will. So God calls him to destroy this, this altar. And the reason why, well, he wants Israel to be free from the snare of idolatry and Gideon to be free when he delivers them. He wants all of them. And so this starts, I'm going to list four things we can do when we're in the midst of a call. Sometimes we talk about, oh, how do you discern a call and such. Um, but what if you're in the midst of a call? What if you've answered? What if you're kind of finding your way through? What do you do? And we can learn a few things from Gideon in the midst of his call. And the first thing is, keep tearing down your idols. There you go. And why do you tear down your idols? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear in Matthew 6:24. We'll look at that. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Which makes a lot of sense. So God knows that these idols will be a snare to Gideon and Israel down the road. And spoiler alert, yes, they show up again, unfortunately. <laughs> but, and I said keep tearing down because these idols have a tendency of coming back in our lives, don't they? Like, in fact, we tend to want to raise them up again, even old ones. Let's go back to my story. Um, I talked about how these idols started to creep in as soon as I started my tenure here at Grace. They started to vie for some attention. One of the differences I found between working at a corporation and a church, the incentives and rewards are markedly different. <laughs> not that you can't work in a corporation and serve God. Not at all. We'll see that later. But treasures in a fully vested 401k, that's very different from treasures in heaven. So, um, There we go. <laughs> and I couldn't put had an awesome Sunday service on my resume. So actually I have a very long resume with that on it. So, um, and because of this, I grew really dissatisfied over the years um, on staff, if you can imagine. I had a smiley face on, but in the week I was very dissatisfied, very apathetic. Dissatisfaction, apathy, that is a dangerous combination because I was serving two masters, really. That's what it was about. I wanted, and I wanted God to reward me like my old master, which was money and success and pride and security. But God was not going to have that. So he started over the years to tear down those idols and have me tear those down. In Colossians 2.23, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. That's a pretty common passage if you go to church, and I've heard it most of my life. And I hear a lot of people say that, you know, when I'm serving and stuff. But then in the back of my mind, it's like, that's really hard to do. And how do you actually do that? And what I found is that I had to keep reminding myself that I was working for the Lord. Because something new would step in or something else. Um, I was confused. Sometimes I think I'd be working for John or Derek, which they loved. Um, <laughs> but the Lord was my master, and the Lord is our master, and we should work for him. Let's continue on Judges 6, 34 through 40 in our story. 
So Gideon's taken down this altar. Now he's ready for battle. He's ready, for, he's ready to roll. Giddy up. All right. Judges 6. Sorry, I used the title in the, in the sermon. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon said, If you have... If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And this is what happened. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me, to, allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. All right, so he wasn't satisfied quite yet that he was doing what he was supposed to do. And what do we see in this passage? Well, the second tip I want to give you for what we can do when we're in the midst of a call is to, to press on and to press God. Two actions. So we see in the midst of his fear and doubt, which Gideon obviously has, he's throwing that fleece down, he's still still not sure, asking God every part of the way, he's still, the Spirit of the Lord falls on him and helps him, and he blows the trumpet, and he actually rallies the troops, which is a very hard thing to do at this time in their history. The Israelites are scattered into 12 tribes and clans. There's no unified form of government or army, and um, there's actually some rivalry between the tribes. So the fact that this guy who's a no-name, um, who was beating wheat a few days earlier, come and rally a force, we actually find a force of 32,000 men. Um, it's pretty miraculous. So you think he would be pretty reassured at that, like, wow, God helped me do this. But no, he, immediately he asked God uh, to perform this miracle to reassure him. And God, again, is incredibly patient, incredibly gracious, because you know how, he knows how Gideon operates. He knows Gideon needs this to complete the task that he's given him. So he does it. The importance here, though, is to get involved, to press on when you're in the midst of the call. Like, like Gideon did when rallying the army, even if you have questions sometimes. But as you press on, you have to keep going back to God. You have to press God. You have to keep going to God for wisdom, for strength, for reassurance, for the truth. About three years into my tenure, makes me sound like a professor or something, but that's the only word I can think of. Three years in my tenure at Grace, um, our worship leader left for graduate school. She was a great person, Peely. I wish you guys could have known him, and known her. And um, so the board asked me, naturally, to be the worship leader. And I said yes. I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest with you. I just said yes. I think they asked me for about what I wanted for lunch or something. But Well, the problem was I had never led worship before. Yes. There's another problem. I had never sung in public before, <laughs> which I probably did not tell them. <laughs> so you can see why there's a problem. Um, the the backstory to that, though, is there was a point in my life where I wanted to be a musician. In high school, I, I was really in the band, and I was actually hoping to make a career out of, out of uh, being a musician. I played the saxophone. And it was during that time that I wrestled with that decision with my parents, obviously. They were wonderful, but they're just being parents. And 
Ultimately, I made that decision that I couldn't go into, I couldn't be a musician because of the practical fact that I didn't think I could make a living out of it. And in the process, I found that actually I put a stigma on musicianship, on musicians, as an occupation. So no offense if you're a musician. I love musicians. Um, obviously, I'm a musician. So, uh, But I put a stigma on it. And what better way to face this than to become a worship leader at a church? So that's what God had me do. I said yes to being a worship leader. Well, what ensued were two years of anxiety, fear, doubt, uncertainty. And that was just a Saturday night. So, <laughs> so the train entered the station and had all my baggage on it for free. It was riding for free. So there are some days where it was really bad. I couldn't leave home in the morning just um, from the anxiety. And, you know, I, I tried to reason myself, what, what's this coming from? The expectations that I feel others have on me, the expectations I feel God might have on me. This is, am I holy enough to lead worship? You know, the sanctified act. It was so bad um, that I knew I needed help. And so I started to seek counsel. Uh, first from my friends, especially the staff, uh, the Slys and Derek, and, and the, my friends in my community groups. I really opened up to them. I saw a Christian counselor. It was that bad. What they taught me to do and what God taught me to do through them is that I couldn't be paralyzed by fear, by expectations. God constantly tells us not to fear in the Bible. He never says, he says, do not be afraid. Whenever he shows up, he says, do not be afraid. I had to press on through my fear and press into God at the same time. I had to step out, but I also had to search God for his truths, the truths that he wrote in his word that he would never leave me or forsake me, that he would bring me peace, um, that he assured salvation through his son. These are things like I literally read these in the morning just so I could get out of bed and walk out of the house, which is kind of an answer to prayer in itself. Um, and uh, I could commiserate with other people in the Bible, like Paul, who writes in Philippians three thirteen and 14. He writes... I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. And those little reminders are what kept me going in those dark, dark days. Enough about me. Let's go back to Gideon and get on with the story. Judges 7, 1 through 2 and 7 through 8. So Gideon's rally this it's a great army, 32,000. It's actually not so great because the Midianites have about 135,000 soldiers. So 135,000 versus 32,000. Pretty good odds. And in Judges we see, the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. Wow, Okay. With the 300 men, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. So what happened in this part was God did not want the Israelites to mistaken their force for their own personal effort and forget that he's the one delivering them. So he tells this to Gideon. Gideon complies. He shaves down the army through a few tests until it's just 300 men. So now it's 300 
versus 135,000. That's 1 to 450. So there's probably 450 in this room. So it's like you guys fighting me. So, and I can take y'all down. So, <laughs> so this is interesting. Yet Gideon, as afraid he is, he complies, you know, and um, God is there to share him along the way. The lesson that we learn here is that when we're in the midst of a call, there's three that we need to rely on God. It's pretty, pretty simple. It's exactly what God says in that passage, that we need to rely on him. And God's been pretty good about answering Gideon so far, I'd say. Pretty patient. But God's pretty smart, too. And God knows what Gideon's doing. God knows who Gideon is. He knows that he's afraid. And he knows that Gideon is just going to keep asking him questions for assurance until the odds are definitely in his favor. So that's why God trims the army down, too, from 135,000 to 300. Go back to my story briefly. So I'm, I'm kind of a nervous wreck. Yes, I can't sing. There's all these points. What happens on a Sunday, then, when I have to sing? Well, now you have to lead a band on stage and everything. What do you do? Well, when the odds are up against you like that, you can't sing, you haven't led worship, you don't feel great about yourself, about the only thing you can do is get on your knees and pray. And that's pretty much what I did Saturday nights or Sunday at 9.28 over there. So whether it was internal or you saw it or not, sometimes I was, I'm very good at hiding it. Um, you got on your knees and pray and you let God know you need his help. And what God did in this process was very important in my life. He started to teach me the importance of his Holy Spirit. So we saw earlier how the Holy Spirit came on Gideon and enabled him to rally the troops. Well, there's something to that. And when Pili was here, she was a spirit-led worship leader. She talked about the Holy Spirit a ton. And a lot of times I grumbled, and I thought it was just like a kind of something you say to make an excuse. I have to be honest sometimes, because I didn't understand the role of the Holy Spirit in my life personally. So God was using this moment to teach me about the importance of relying on that. He was pulling me outside of myself. He was telling me, well, this is not about you, God. Orion, this is not about you. And then he surrounded me with extraordinary people. You guys, the people sitting here. He surrounded me with my music team, who was incredibly supportive um, week in and week out who are my friends during the week. And God challenged me to think about what worship was, what it meant. It was more than just music. It was more than this thing, this noise we're making. And he started to help me to see and believe that my job was a responsibility to him and to his people, to these wonderful people, you guys sitting right here. And he helped me to believe what Colossians 2.23 said, which was that, we work for the Lord only, not for men. God started to give me hope. He started to cast away fear in me so that I could be free to do what he wanted me to do. And it's taken a while, so, and it's still happening, uh, mind you. So let's go back to the story. We're going to go to the home stretch now and finish this Gideon story. So Gideon has got the 300, and he's got confirmation from God. Yeah, we're going to beat these 135,000 minions. So he, surely he's, he's ready. Actually, he's not. So it's the night before they should be attacking. God knows he's afraid, and he throws him another bone. He goes, Gideon, 
I know you're afraid. So guess what? Go down to the Midianite camp, to your enemy camp. Sneak down there with your servant, and you'll hear some encouraging words. So Gideon goes down there, and miraculously he goes to the exact spot in this giant camp to the exact two Midianite soldiers who were talking about a dream that one of them had. And in his dream, he dreamt, essentially, that Gideon came and overthrew the army with the 300. Well, Gideon, at this point, is ecstatic. And it's odd that he's fi- he worships God in that, at that spot. And it's funny that he worships God only after he hears it from the mouth of an enemy, not from God himself all this time. And he gathers his men, and, and without weapons, they actually slay the Midianites, 120,000 of them. They surround them at night with horns, ram's horns, and with a torch in hand, and they blow a horn. Gideon tells him to shout this. He says, for the Lord and for Gideon. Which is interesting because we start to see a little bravery now coming out of Gideon, a little mighty warrior. He puts his name out there uh, along with God. So he is becoming this mighty warrior that God called him initially. So this is the middle of the night, and they make this ruckus. And what happens is the Midianites um, get up in a fray. They're disoriented. And it actually says God confuses them, so God probably had a lot to do with them. And they actually turn on each other, and they kill each other, 120,000 of them. And 15,000 of them run away, and uh, Gideon pursues them. So the fourth and last point that we can do uh, when we're in the midst of a call is to be patient and remember God's promises. We saw that Gideon was patient in his deliberate request to God, but God was incredibly patient in his answers to those requests and in his working through Gideon's fears. And remember the first thing that God said to Gideon. He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And we see at the end of this passage that he actually fulfills that. He never wavered from that promise. The remainder of Gideon's story is a little less uplifting. Um, and as often happens, these guys do great, and then there's something that brings them down. So he's definitely more confident now. He's actually pursuing his enemies. And at this point on, for the rest of the chapter, until chapter 8, you don't see Gideon talking to God anymore. He never goes to him for questioning. Everything he does on his own accord. Um, even when he slays the 15,000, it's a strategy that he's developed. Something else is compelling. He's lost his sights. He's forgot to press into God. He's just pressing on by himself. So they chase down the 15,000. He slays them. We find out that actually they killed his brothers. So it's kind of an act of revenge, actually, on his part. He goes back, and actually there were two ally cities that wouldn't help him while he was pursuing. He goes back, and in retribution he kills some of them. He destroys their towers. He delivers his own judgment on them. And he comes back to Israel. And what do the Israelites do? Well, you think the Israelites would be, oh, thank you, God, for delivering us. Well, this is what they do in Judges 7, 22. It says, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Notice they don't mention God anywhere. They just say, you have saved us. Gideon saved them. And they want him to be king, essentially. But Gideon told them, 
I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, he said. All right, there you go. He did something right. But he says this, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which an ephod is like a ceremonial garment, uh, like a priestly garment. Essentially, he's making an idol here. He might not even know it. Which he placed in Ophrah, his town. Remember the place where he first took down the altar of Baal before he could do anything? And all, the Israel, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it all became a snare to Gideon and his family. Whoops. So, if we could just end the story at 722, it would have been nice. But Gideon made that little mistake there, and he pays for it, and Israel pays for it, as we see in the next chapter, through his son, um, through the lifestyle he lives, actually, he refuses the kingship. He actually ends up living like a king and acting like a king for the rest of his life. He has several wives and concubines. He actually has 71 sons through them. Um, he actually calls one of his sons Abimelech, which actually means um, son of the king. So that's kind of obvious. Uh, but still, God loves to redeem us, doesn't he? Even when he makes mistakes. And he still loves Gideon. He still loves Israel. So even despite Gideon's mistake, Israel's mistakes, God brings his people peace. So in the concluding parts of this series, Judges 7.20, it says, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. So as, as I was reading this story, a small part, of a verse in one of the chapters stuck out to me. And it's very obscure, actually. I don't know why it came out to me. But it was Judges 6.18. It's when Gideon requests that sign from God, and he goes to bring an offering right in the beginning of the story. And what struck me is when the Lord said, I will wait until you return. It really stayed with me. It reminded me of the past six years of my own life, of God's patience with me that even though I had a terrible attitude sometimes, plenty of shortcomings, even when I continued to build up idols as fast as I tore them down, that God stayed with me. <clears throat> he said, I will wait until you return. He surrounded me with friends and a board and a staff that exemplified the same patience that God would have with me day after day. And God still said, I will wait until you return. And it reminded me tremendously of the prodigal son and the father's attitude towards the son when he returned. So as we kind of wind down today, I'm actually going to conclude with the same verse that I concluded two years ago. It's not, it's just a coincidence or God maybe willed this. I didn't try to do it. Um, but it's Second Peter 3.9. And it really encapsulates so much of the story and so much of the life um, that I've lived in the last six years. And if we look at it, it holds true today, it holds true. It's very timeless. Second Peter 3, 9, uh, in a, I'm going to read in two translations, actually. In NIV, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
I actually really like the message version too. It says, God isn't late with his promise as some measure lateness. He is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He is giving everyone space and time to change. That's what he does with you. That's what he's been doing with me. I'm happy that he's still doing that with me. Um, and that is the hope that we have. That no matter how many times we fail and how many times we come back, God is still patient. God is faithful in fulfilling the promises he has for us. So that is the word today. If you guys will pray with me in closing. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for being patient with us, God, even when we're not patient ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we just want to change things on our own and go our own way. But God, we know that your way is the best, and sometimes we can't see that until 6, 10, 20, a lifetime of years down the road. But it's so worth it when we do see it and when it happens. God, thank you. Help us to trust you each day. Help everyone in this room trust you in something that's challenging them, that's facing them. If they're in a call or they're being faced with a call, God, help them through that. Help them to press on and press towards you and be patient. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. was excellent very much he did have to put up with his bad attitude all those years of dealing with that bad attitude but I guess it was worth it Uh, thank you very much Uh, I'm not going to sing now (laughs) Derek will be happy to sing at any moment and I will not be happy to sing but uh, thank you very much We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and I think Ryan has given us a lot to think about as we go to celebrate communion. For those of us in this room who God has a call, and and the call comes in many shapes, right, different ways, not just a call to be on staff at a church, but a call for whatever that is, whatever God's leading you to. What Ryan has talked about this morning is that when we're in the midst of that, there are times when we have a lot of self-doubt and we feel like we can't get out of bed and we have fears and on and on it goes, right? Discouragement. And then there's the temptations that we face along the way, different idols that come up and we fight against that. Here's the the thing Ryan talked about is that God is going to be with us, that we can rely on him. He's going to help us tear down those idols. He's going to work patiently with us and all that. And how does that connect to communion? We have a rambunctious 18-year-old that roams around in our house. And, you know, he has a lot of big ideas. And if you've been around here a long time, you know about that. There's a lot of things he's doing. And it's hard sometimes to get him focused in on just what we want him to do. And he... You know, well, we need you to mow the lawn. He's, well, I can mow the lawn or I could, you know, do this, that, and other, all these big plans he has. But when we're really serious, when we are really serious about saying to him, we need you to do, you have to do this thing. We say to him, you better sign this paper. We'll write all this stuff down. You better sign it in your blood. Like, that way we know, at least we hope, that you'll do it. Well, here's the thing about communion. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us with communion. He was so serious about it that he would be with us, that he would give us strength. And for for those of us in this room right now, right now, you're facing discouragement. 
uh, you're afraid, hard to get out of bed, or you're tearing down idols, and you don't know if you're doing the right thing. You thought you were at one time, but you're not sure. What are you doing with life? How can you keep going on? Jesus Christ says to us, I am so serious about this that I'm going to sign this in my blood. And what is on my heart this morning as we take communion is that as you take communion this morning, that that you would sense God and God's power would come, just be with you and give you strength and whatever you're fighting, maybe it's discouraging this morning, you would feel that begin to just dissolve before you. Or maybe there's some issue, some practical issue, and somehow God today or this week would resolve that. If you identify with that, I just want to ask as you take communion this morning that you just release that to God. Say, hey, God, I, I need you in the midst of this. And I also encourage you to visit with our prayer team that's over on this wall, like during communion. So here's how communion is done here at Grace. Um, you can see we have five different stations here and here and here and here, all these stations. And we're going to pray. I'm going to read some scripture, and we're going to pray. And then you just come when you would like to. music team is going to play some, some worship music. They're bread here, the, the body of Christ, and the cup, the blood of Jesus Christ. And you'll take the bread, and you'll just dip it into the cup, and you'll eat the bread and go back to your seat, or you'll visit the prayer team, spend some time talking to the Lord. All right. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what it says. The word of the Lord. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass it on to you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. That you were so serious about this, that you just didn't say it, but you wrote it in your blood. That you have sealed this promise to us that you'll be with us, that you'll wait patiently for us, that we can trust you and rely upon you. That you'll help us to tear down those idols. and All of this, Jesus, you signed in your blood. And today, as we celebrate what you have done for us, Father, be with us. Some of us in this room are very discouraged. We have a hard time you know, just getting out of bed and facing life and facing the call that you have upon us. We feel hopeless and we feel helpless. And some of us are just dealing with temptation. Like we want to do this. We want to move forward. But we face these temptations that are just getting the best of us. We need your power. We need your presence. We need your strength. And Lord, like Gideon, every now and then we need some kind of fleece, some kind of sign, God. And then we need you to patiently help us as we see the sign and we celebrate the sign. Then we doubt the sign. God, today in communion, all of this. All of this, this big ball of stuff that we offer before you, Lord, help us in the name of Jesus Christ. Bless the drinking of this cup and the eating of this bread to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. In your holy name, amen. God bless you. Please feel free to come when you want to.